0: These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look.
1: Once upon a time, a man discovered something called DNA. Many believed that DNA could be the instructions for life, but you know, no one really understood it or how it worked. In the early 1950s, three groups of people began working on the problem. By 1953, the race to understand DNA was over. It had finally been explained a group of men received high praise for the work they had done. But there was one other that had as much to do with discovery as them and didn't receive any of the credit she deserved. Her contributions were overlooked. Today I have the story of Rosalind Franklin and her work explaining the secrets of life on the 206th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.
0: Coffee
1: Good Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spent about two weeks or so researching a topic I'd like to know more about, and then write it into a hopefully engaging story. Like, for instance, today, Rosalind Franklin. I've heard that name mentioned many times on the wonderful podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and I decided I needed to find out about her for myself. Now this is a long story, so I'm gonna get right into it. But I wanted to point out that many of the quotes I use for today's story came from a BBC documentary called The Secret of Life. It's on YouTube and I'll have a link to it in today's show notes. So let's get right into it. The story of one woman's effort to help explain DNA. I was a sort of general physical molecular biologist and I hadn't at all specialized in X-ray diffraction methods. And so Rosalind Franklin was uh, brought into this work uh, because she was an experienced, very able, uh, x-ray diffraction uh, sort of specialist professional. And uh, looking back on it, of course, it's, it's quite clear that if you regard sort of getting the structure of DNA as race, uh, that we'd lost the race very early on because uh, we, we didn't find it possible to work together. In 1962 James Watson, Francis Crick and Marcus Wilkins were awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for the discovery concerning the molecular structure of nucleic acids and its significance for information transfer in living materials. What Crick, Watson and Wilkins discovered was the structure of the DNA molecule. You know that twisty double helix thing? It was one of the most significant achievements of the 20th century. Yet barely mentioned at the time was Rosalind Franklin, an English chemist and x-ray crystallographer. Now, Franklin wasn't qualified to win the Nobel Prize. She died four years before it was awarded, and it's against the rules for anybody to win the prize posthumously. Is it me, or is this a strange rule? Anyway, even if she had been living, she probably wouldn't have been included, even though she made significant contributions that made the discovery possible. She was almost entirely overlooked until James Watson published his book, The Double Helix, in 1968. Ever since that book, people slowly have begun to recognize her achievements. Rosalind Esley Franklin was born in London to a well-to-do and influential British Jewish family on July 25, 1920. She was the second of five children to Muriel Francis Whaley and Ellis Arthur Franklin. The Franklin family placed a high value on education and service. They helped settle Jewish refugees from Europe who escaped the Nazis and even took in two Jewish children. Rosalind was an intellectually precocious child and knew from an early age what she wanted to do. Her aunt Mamie Bentwich, while on holiday with the Franklin family when Rosalind was only six, wrote to her husband that Rosalind is alarmingly clever. She spends all her time doing arithmetic for pleasure and invariably gets her sums right. All her life, Franklin's mother noted, Rosalind knew exactly where she was going, and at 16, she took science for her subject. She was a gifted student who believed in justice and logic and thrived on intellectual debate. She would challenge others to justify their opinion and positions, and use this method her whole life to learn and teach and to clarify her own understanding. At one time, her father wanted to be a scientist himself, but that didn't work out he became a political liberal London merchant banker who taught at the city's working men's college. Now, he was against higher education for women and encouraged Rosalind to be a social worker, but she continued to show an amazing intelligence. By her early teens at St. Paul's Girls School in Hammersmith, West London, she excelled in science, Latin, and sports and had a passion for hiking in mountains. She also learned German and became fluent in French. In fact, she had a lifelong love of France, and all things French, after she visited Paris when she was 18 years old. From 1938 to 1941, she went to Newnham College, Cambridge, on a scholarship. She studied natural science with a focus on chemistry, and like always, she did wonderful. It was while at Cambridge that she was introduced to the new field of X-ray crystallography, This is a technique of shooting x-rays through a crystal onto a film to reveal refraction patterns. By using complicated math, it is possible to determine the three-dimensional form of a molecule that is too small to see, even under a microscope. Although she ended her time at the school in 1941, she didn't actually graduate until 1948, and this was because degrees were not awarded to women by Cambridge until 1947. After school, she worked in Paris for a short time until English physicist and biochemist John Randall offered her a job at King's College in London, a highly prestigious research center. Rosalind was hired to work on X-ray diffraction of proteins and lipids in solution, but before she got started, Randall redirected her work into a new field, the structure of DNA. DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid, was first isolated by Swiss physician Frederick Meiser in 1869. And over the next 80 years, there were many theories and discoveries about DNA made by a handful of scientists. One thing that scientists could not understand was how could such a simple molecule be the blueprint for life? What is it in these cells that cause traits to be passed on from one generation to another? How do these little miracles duplicate? By the 1940s, the race was on to show how DNA worked and to model its structure. Many believed that understanding DNA was the way to understand life. Already working at the lab was Maurice Wilkins. Wilkins was involved with the creation of the atomic bomb. He later said, I was hoping it wouldn't work, but it did work, so we live with the aftermath of that. Disillusioned by what he had helped cause, he decided to focus on life, and that's why he began working on DNA. When Wilkins and his assistant Raymond Gosling started to work with X-ray crystallography, John Randall realized they were onto something important. He decided to bring in an expert in crystallography. That was Rosalind Franklin. Franklin arrived at the lab while Wilkins was on vacation, and she began working with his assistant Gosling. When Wilkins returned, he found that Franklin had taken over his lab and significantly improved its antiquated equipment. This started a long, uncomfortable relationship between Franklin and Wilkins that would last for Franklin's whole time at King's College. One of the main problems was that Randall never made it clear who was in charge. Wilkins thought Franklin should be his assistant, while Franklin was not about to be an assistant to anybody, for she was already an expert at crystallography. The two also had clashing personalities. Wilkins was a quiet, soft-spoken man who avoided confrontation. He was so shy he couldn't even look at the person he was talking to. And many times one would find themselves talking to the back of his head. Rosalind, however, was direct, intense, opinionated, and loved a good debate. She had large dark eyes that would gaze directly at the one she was talking to. She was the kind of a person that had no problem expressing her feelings and made no attempt to sugarcoat her thoughts on someone else's work. To many, including Wilkins, her way of communicating was interpreted as her being difficult. Raymond Gosling later said of Wilkins, He wasn't able to talk to her. He should have made, as more senior, made the effort to bring her into the camp. I think he knows this and it haunts him. On top of that, there was a general boys' club attitude at the college that made working there very difficult for Franklin. Even with the problems, Rosalind was focused entirely on discovering the structure of DNA. Using her chemistry background, she vastly improved the technique for research. Wilkins, however, was offended by her attitude, saying that she had a cool air of superiority. Her general way of talking, looking colleagues right in the eye while being concise and patient and direct, unnerved many of them. Even with all that, the team discovered two forms of DNA. Franklin named these forms A and B. Some have said that this discovery was the most crucial step in discovering DNA. Soon, however, molecular biologist, geneticist, and zoologist, 23-year-old James Watson, entered her life. Watson believed that DNA was the secret of life, and he came to Europe to attend a conference in Naples where Wilkins showed one of his early fuzzy refraction images of DNA. After the meeting... Watson tried to talk Wilkins into giving him a job at King's College, but Watson declined. He was then hired by Sir Lawrence Bragg, the director of the Cavendish Laboratory. The Cavendish Laboratory was about an hour's drive from King's College, and it was there that Watson was introduced to another scientist, British molecular scientist, biophysicist, and neuroscientist, Francis Crick. The two became good friends almost immediately and began to work on DNA. Watson later said of Crick, As long as I could talk to Francis, you know, every day was worthwhile. And while those two went to work on the problem, Rosalind continued to make discoveries of her own. She kept making more detailed refraction images, and it was those images that led her to believe that DNA was in a helix structure. When her findings were presented at King's College, James Watson snuck into the audience as a spy. He was sent there by Crick to find out just what she was up to. When it was over, he rushed back to Crick, and the two began working with her data to build a model. There was also another man working on the problem, and that was American scientist Linus Pauling. Pauling was attempting to solve the problem by building three-dimensional models of DNA. You create a model using sticks and balls, using physics as your guide, and then you analyze the structure. Watson and Crick decided to use Pauling's model-building approach instead of Franklin and Wilkin's slow research method. Watson said in the BBC documentary, The Secret of Life, it was sort of thought that we were parasites. Other people did the work and we got the glory. But the truth was, um, complicated. According to Raymond Gosling, Franklin's thought on this was, you could build models all day, but how do you prove which one is right? On the other hand, if you make measurements, did all the correct geometry, and you put them into the equations... You would let the data speak for itself, and out of that would become a definitive structure. So when Watson and Crick created their first DNA model, which was based a lot on Franklin's lecture, they invited the folks from King's College to take a look. Raymond Gosling said that Franklin took one look and laughed. She was delighted for approved what she already knew. Model building was a waste of time until you have all the data. Rosalind told them, frankly, that they got it all wrong. They had forgotten certain points that she had made during her lecture. And like always, Rosalind didn't sugarcoat the situation. Not only were Crick and Watson humiliated, but they were also offended by her attitude. The news was so devastating to Sir Lawrence Bragg, the director of the Cavendish Laboratory, that he canceled the project and forbade Wilson and Crick to do any more model building. In fact, their model building equipment was shipped to King's College. Rosalind continued with her experimentation and patient analysis, knowing that it would reveal the answer. And the King's college team should have beaten Crick and Watson, but it was perhaps the tension between Wilkins and Franklin that prevented them from achieving the solution. And it didn't help matters that Wilkins had become a lot friendlier with Crick and Watson and in secret began passing on Franklin's research to them. In May of 1952, an x-ray diffraction image was taken by Raymond Gosling under the supervision of Franklin of the type B DNA. It was the most precise, sharp image yet taken. She labeled it as photo 51. The photo is considered one of the most crucial pieces in the identification of the structure of DNA. It clearly showed its structure was a double helix. By the time of Photo 51, Rosalind Franklin had made the decision to leave King's College. She had grown really unhappy with the sexism, or at least the problem of her getting along with Wilkins. Now at the time, to poke fun at her, she was being called Rosie. Whether she knew this was going on or not is unknown. But Franklin agreed to finish her work on DNA before leaving. When American scientist Linus Pauling's son visited Watson and Crick's lab... Because he was friends with Watson, he let them know that his dad was now giving his full attention to the problem of DNA. The two panicked and began working harder on the problem, and of course, technically, they weren't supposed to be doing this. When some time later, Pauling's son showed them the paper that Linus Pauling had written on the structure of DNA, they were relieved to discover that Pauling had gotten it completely wrong. Watson decided to share Pauline's paper with those at King's College. It was there that Wilkins, in secret, showed photo 51 to Watson. It is said that Watson's jaw dropped to the floor as he stared at the photo. He drew what he saw on a newspaper. In Wilkins' defense, he says he saw nothing wrong with sharing the picture, that scientists should share information. Science should be an open activity, and so you can work as a community. With this photo and other information of Franklin's that were secretly passed on, Wilson and Crick finally had all they needed to make an accurate model of a DNA structure. They received permission to go back to work on the problem. And not only did they build an accurate model, but once created, it was simple to see how DNA could replicate. Unknown to anyone at the time, Franklin was also close to solving the problem. This wouldn't be discovered until years later when a friend was going through her papers. She mentioned that she thought it was double helix, but she never finished before she moved on. Amazingly, once their model was done, they invited the team at King's College to take a look. Watson and Crick were nervous because of what had happened last time. Watson wrote in his book, The Double Helix, that Franklin's immediate acceptance of the model amazed him. Of course, she probably never knew how much of her work went into that model. Gosling said Rosalind would have been appalled to learn that they had taken quite so much detail of her current work and put that into their model. Watson said, I don't know if we behaved right or wrong, if we were good or bad guys. It depends on your set of values and the facts you have. But the world wouldn't know about her work until Watson's book came out 15 years later. Now I want to point out that Watson and Crick were two very intelligent men who made some fantastic discoveries. They took the research by Franklin, as well as others like Erwin Chargraft, an expert in chemistry, who discovered the two rules of DNA, and put it all together to come up with the double helix we know today. That's the way science works, each scientist building off each other's work. The issue was, to many, that they didn't acknowledge Franklin's contribution. Aaron Klug, who worked with Franklin later at Burbeck College in London, and would later win the Nobel Prize, said, Rosalind never complained. In fact, she admired them enormously. Wilson and Crick's findings were published on April 25, nineteen fifty-three. By then Franklin had left King's College and was now working at Burbeck College in London. She worked with J.B. Burnell, who was a communist, and even though she disagreed with his politics, she was happy to find a place where everyone was treated the same, men and women. It was like a breath of fresh air. And while the working environment was pleasant, the actual building wasn't so much. She commented that she had moved from a palace to the slums. She worked in a rundown building with a leaky roof, in which she would sometimes use an umbrella at her desk to keep her papers from getting wet on rainy days. She had pots all over to catch the drips as they fell. But the sexism she had dealt with wasn't so much at Burbeck, and she made what she called her greatest discovery. She began working on viruses, doing X-ray work on a plant called the tobacco mollusk virus, or TMV. She found this project exciting and helped scientists understand the problem of plant viruses. Her work also helped in the study of animal viruses. She would work with Aaron Klug on this, and like Watson, Crick, and Wilkins, Klug would win the Nobel Prize for the work. She spent a lot of time traveling, mountain climbing, and even traveled to Israel, traveling in the cheapest way possible, in a most uncomfortable boat. But she said that's what she loved, traveling with little money, using her wits to get by. From her work at Burbeck, she began to get recognized for her work and secured her international reputation— in 1956, she was invited to universities in the USA, and while there, she climbed to Mount Whitney in California. But it was on this trip she began to experience problems. She found her stomach began to bulge, making it difficult to zip up her skirt. Franklin had cancer. It might have been brought on by all those years of doing research experiments with x-rays. Maybe not. But she continued to work, publishing seven papers in 1956 and six more in 1957. Rosalind Franklin died on April 15, 1958 in London. She was only 37 years old. Now, as I said, her work on DNA pretty much went unnoticed until Watson's book, The Double Helix, which was published in 1968. Franklin had to battle sexism all her life. Being a woman dominated by men wasn't easy... And even in Watson's book, she continued to be belittled because of her sex. Watson called her by the insulting name he had given her. He writes, Clearly, Rosie had to be put in her place. The former was obviously preferable because, given her belligerent moods, it would be very difficult for Maurice to maintain a dominant position that would allow him to think unhindered about DNA. And he even commented about the way she dressed, as if that had anything to do with anything. By choice, she did not emphasize her feminine qualities. Those features were strong. She was not unattractive and might have been quite stunning had she taken a mild interest in her clothes. This she did not. There was never lipstick to contrast her straight black hair. While at the age of 31, her dress showed all the imagination of an English blue-stocking adolescence. And in another interview, he said, she did not go out of her way to make herself attractive. When asked why that mattered, he said, because it's important. And I'd like to point out that a lot of this could be said, except for the lipstick about Albert Einstein, but whatever. But he also wrote in his book, But now the race was over, and, as one of the winners, I knew the tale was not as simple, and certainly not as the newspapers reported. Chiefly, it was a matter of five people. Maurice Wilkins, Rosalind Franklin, Linus Pauling, Francis Crick, and me. And he wrote... In 1958, Rosalind Franklin died at the early age of 37. Since my initial impressions of her, both scientific and personal, as I recorded in the early pages of this book, were often wrong, I want to say something about her achievements. The x-ray work she did at King's is increasingly regarded as superb. And then he goes on to compliment her work. We both came to appreciate greatly her personal honesty and generosity. And then he wrote... Realizing too late the struggles that the intelligent woman faces to be accepted in a scientific world which often regards women as mere diversions from serious thinking. Rosalind's exemplary courage and integrity were apparent to all when, knowing that she was mortally ill, she did not complain, but continued working at a high level until a few weeks before her death. In a 1999 interview on BBC Radio, Francis Crick said on The DNA Problem... It was fairly fast, but you know, we were lucky. One must remember, it was based on the x-ray work done here in London, starting off with Morris Wilkins and carried on by Rosalind Franklin. And we wouldn't have got to that stage of at least having a molecular model if it hadn't been for their work. Aaron Klug said of Franklin, Well, she was an absolutely first-class experimenter. She actually had energy and enthusiasm and tremendous skills and insight. She once told me... What's the use of doing all this work if we don't get some fun out of it? She enjoyed doing what she did. She was very practical. Crick was to use the helical theory in an attempt to interpret the x-ray pattern that Watson had seen on his visit to King's. But, unfortunately, much of what Rosalind Franklin said at the meeting and which he attempted to pass on to Crick during a visit they made to Oxford was over Watson's head. Part of the... The difficulty was I really didn't understand the jargon. I wasn't a crystallographer. And uh, she'd keep using some terms like unit cell or something like that. And I wasn't sure what it was meant. A little bit before I go. In my opinion, there was nothing wrong with Watson and Crick using Franklin's data to come up with the model for DNA. I mean, James Watt often gets credit for inventing the first practical steam engine, but a lot of the parts of that engine were invented by others, and he sort of just put them all together. That's the way things work. The idea of a lone scientist making an amazing discovery all on his own is pretty much a fantasy. Scientists build on each other's work, and it's usually the one who takes the final step that gets the credit. The problem here is, Rosalind Franklin had to deal with a lot of sexism and wasn't given the credit until long after she was dead. One wonders if she ever realized in her life just how important her work was to Watson and Crick. But you know, as I research this, I get the feeling, for her, doing the science was what was important. I don't know if she really cared about fame or recognition, but you know, I really don't know. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you for listening. You know, this show takes money to produce and make available. If you've got a few coins you can afford to donate to keep the show going, that would be wonderful. You can do so by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. Hey, and tell your friends about the show, will you? You can also email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. I encourage you to suggest stories for future episodes. And links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode can be found at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link at my website. I'd like to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks. Coffee with Jeff
0: Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. Coffee or coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee.